0: Welcome to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, Camden Bird, and I'm an assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University. I'm very excited to introduce my guest today, Dr. Benjamin Park. Uh, Benjamin E. Park received his Ph.D. in history from the University of Cambridge and teaches American religion at Sam Houston State University. He is the editor of the Blackwell Companion to American Religious History and co-editor of Mormon Studies Review. His book, Kingdom of Nauvoo, received the Best Book Award for the Mormon History Association. That book, The Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier, is the subject of our conversation today. Dr. Park, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: I'm pleased to be here, and I'll, I'll compliment you on getting the name Nauvoo correctly. Not, not everyone gets it, including my audiobooks narrator.
0: <laughs> well, you know, living in Illinois, I'm like, I've really practiced, um, you know, getting those place names correct. It's all new to me. So, um, yes, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, well, before we uh, jump into the book, uh, I'd love to hear the origin story of the book project. Uh, what led you to write this book on the history of the Mormon Church during their years in Illinois?
1: Yeah, so... There, there's both a long and a short version of the origin story. So I'll stick to the short version for, (laughs) uh, you know, to keep your listeners happy. I was raised in the LDS church. I uh, actually spent a semester in Nauvoo. Uh, It was through uh, my interest in my own religious, uh, my own religion's history that got me interested in history in the first place. But then when I went off to get my PhD and I wrote my first book, I had nothing to do with Mormonism. My interest had moved on. And then in 2016, the LDS Church released uh, a set of documents known as the Council of Fifty Minutes, these records from a secretive council that Joe Smith organized in the last few months of his life that had long been sequestered uh, for, you know, ever since the moment of their existence. They didn't let anyone uh, look at them. And then they were finally released in 2016. And because I had a background in Mormon history and because I was an expert in the early American religion and politics, uh, they had asked me to look at an advanced review copy of these minutes before they were released. And as soon as I looked at those minutes, I realized that there was a bigger story here, that that they were a potent expression of what I call democratic discontent, meaning that now we take democracy for granted. Uh, But back then, democracy was still an experiment. And here, and a lot of my scholarship is focused on people who were worried that democracy was going to fail. And here, from my own religious tradition, was what I believe maybe the most pointed expression of that dynamic. So I decided then and there that I was going to write the background for what led to the Council of 50 uh, and why democracy can be seen as a moment of democratic failure.
0: And to, to be clear to listeners, I mean, this this is certainly a book about Mormon history, but it's it's not. like You're playing with bigger themes um, and there's bigger questions, and we'll get to that. In a second, I, I wonder, though, if to sort of lead up to your book project, uh, many of our listeners may not be familiar uh, with the basic history of Mormonism, um, and, and your book does focus on this particular window of time in which many of the pra- practitioners are actually living in, in Illinois, but I, I, I wonder if it would be helpful to give us a sort of brief history of the community of the faith prior to their arrival in Illinois, just to get us sort of caught up to where, where your book uh, picks up the story.
1: Sure. Mormonism was born in the midst of what scholars call the Second Great Awakening in America during this period in the first few decades of the 19th century, when uh, many Americans caught religion or were seekers or trying to, you know, recapture a spirituality that at least in the minister's minds had been lost in this young republic. And so you have a series of revivals. And Joseph Smith was a young boy raised in uh, New England and then moved to upstate New York, who, uh, Got caught up in these revivals and wanted to capture religion. And like many others of the period, started having, you know, visionary religious conversion experiences. Uh, But he went on from having his own conversion experience to then having, claiming angelic ministrations to eventually getting access to a ancient record that he called the Golden Plates, which he, uh, in his words, translated into the Book of Mormon. Uh, and so the, and then a, soon a community, a church formed around this book in 1830. And perhaps the most consistent thing that this church faced was opposition early on. They were founded in upstate New York. They moved to uh, Pennsylvania. They moved to Ohio. They moved to Missouri. And in each instance, you see both profound growth and uh, dissent and uh, competition and eventually uh, expulsion. The Mormons are kicked out of Ohio due to internal dissent and external pressure. Uh, They're forcibly kicked out of Missouri when the state governor declares them nuisances and that they should either be exterminated or driven from the state. And so by the time that they arrive in Illinois, they're religious refugees. They believe that the system had failed them. And Illinois, at least at first, welcomed them with open arms, saying that if America is supposed to be, you know, Home to religious uh, dissenters, uh, and that we proclaim religious freedom. Well, we are going to be a great state and actually incorporate them. So you get you you get from the very start this rivalry between Illinois and Missouri, where Illinois says the enemy of our enemy is our friend. Missouri being you know the slave holding competitor state to their west. Illinois, we we are much better at democracy, so we're going to incorporate the Mormons, um, and the Mormons are are quite grateful for that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like- I wonder if we can talk a little bit more about Illinois. I mean, this podcast is the the Midwestern History Association, though I, I you know, no one in 1840 was really talking about this as the Midwest. This was the West. This was the frontier. Um, I'm curious, you know, what made, you know, you sort of hinted at this. What makes Illinois such an attractive location to build up uh, this new community?
1: So because it was a frontier state and because it was seen as a symbol of how democracy can function on the Western frontier without slavery, uh, Illinois had a very energetic and dynamic culture where if you were ambitious and uh, talented, you could raise the ranks. Uh, That if you were a marginalized community, your voice might matter because the state is also pretty equally divided between the political parties at the time, the Whigs and the Democrats. And so you have... uh, a state that's pretty ripe for a marginalized community to come in and immediately exert some power and draw some influence because both of the political parties want to listen to these marginalized communities because they need the votes. Uh, the state is also expanding. They're granted three new congressional districts after the 1840 census, and so suddenly there's going to be a whole host new of uh, of politicians who want the Mormons to vote for them. So the Mormons are like, these conditions are ripe for us. Here is a state that's anxious for new immigration do all also in part to a uh, financial crisis that was going on in the wake of the 1837 panic, Uh, that they had new political possibilities due to the new congressional seats, and that they're going to listen to us because all the politicians want our vote. So at least in the early years, Illinois politicians are tripping over each other, trying to appease the Mormons and secure what appeared to be, you know, thousands of block voters willing to vote however Joseph Smith and LDS leaders uh, told them. So it was, uh, so it seemed like a very, uh, a match made in heaven, at least at first. And then like most cases where you use the term match made in heaven, uh, it does not go as expected.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting just reading, uh, how quickly it turns. I mean, this is clear that, uh, you know, as the Mormons are settling into Nauvoo that they, they recognize the voting potential and the voting block that they have in that in, in the state of Illinois, um, but that, yeah, in just a matter of a few years, this really starts to change. Um, in in also starting that settlement, I mean, they're afforded a lot of uh, flexibility on writing charters and, and making their own rules. I mean, they're actually, you know, this is a community, I imagine in the early years, this felt like there was a lot of hope for actual um, safety, for community autonomy, for an opportunity for that community to finally thrive after experiences in, in, in Ohio and in Missouri.
1: Yeah, I... They saw it as, I mean, they renamed the place. When they when they arrived there, it was a community known as Commerce, which, you know, the term just reflects that it was idea to be, you know, a, an, a, an economic outpost along the Mississippi River mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. America's new growing capitalistic empire the Mormons saw this as a beautiful place. So Joseph Smith rechristens it Nauvoo, which in his mind is a Hebrew term, meaning a beautiful place. And so they they give this both a a potentially positive situation, a new sacred cause, and calling it, you know, the center of what's going to be the kingdom of God.
0: Relatedly, I mean, I spent some time in the University of Utah, I, you know, I studied uh, history there, spent time with Paul Reeve, who I'm sure you're, you're you know, very good friends with. and And Really, someone from who grew up in the Midwest had no sort of real knowledge of history of Mormonism, um, took Utah history with him, which, of course, covers much of this, uh, as well as a Mormonism and a, a Mormons in American experience class. Um, and I'm fascinated by this time period. And I think you do such a great job in your book of just sort of reiterating the fact of how important the Nauvoo years are uh, for the development of the church as well. Um this is an era that's defined by tremendous changes within the church structure itself, as well as some new practices uh, of the faith community. How do these developments shape some of the internal dynamics at Nauvoo? Uh, and how did they influence that outside community and how they viewed uh, their residents in no- Nauvoo?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So Mormonism goes through a pretty remarkable transformation over its first few decades, as any new movement does, because, you know, you're not just you don't receive a fax in 1830 and say, this is what Mormonism is going to be. And now you need to follow this blueprint. Instead, it's, it's an evolving faith. And so Early on, Mormonism in the 1830s is, and one of my favorite phrases put by the scholar Kathleen Flake, basically Methodism with a Moses in the middle, right? With the with the idea of, of just kind of a flavor of these of these different already existing groups. Um, but by Nauvoo, Joseph Smith is you know building upon some of these foundations that he laid before, and developing what can be known as the hallmarks of of the Latter-day Saint tradition. Things like eternal marriage, or this very strong hierarchical uh, structure, uh, or baptisms for the dead, temple rituals. Uh, All all these elements that uh, become quite crucial to Mormonism in total, originate in Nauvoo. Now, there's both internal and external reaction to this beyond just, you know, thousands of Latter-day Saints who fully embrace this. I, d- I don't want to, you know, say that it causes all this reaction because no one likes it. I mean, a mm-hmm. majority of Latter-day Saints in, in Nauvoo, you know, embrace because they believe the crux of Mormonism is believing in a living prophet and continuous revelation. And these are things being revealed from God mm-hmm. uh, to create a new society. But there are those who didn't like these new developments. Those inside the church who were like, this isn't what we signed up for. We embraced a Mormonism that was much more, you know, mainstream Protestant, as much as the religion founded on gold plates and the Book of Mormon could be mainstream Protestant. But we 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 like the older version of, of Mormonism. And then of course, you know, the big uh, issue that's going to be a driving wedge is polygamy, which Joseph Smith starts uh, tepidly teaching 1840, 1841, shortly after they arrive in Nauvoo. And then that practice itself evolves quite substantially over the next few years. And there are a number of Mormons in Nauvoo who see like, this is a betrayal of our faith. This is not what we wanted. Uh, This is actually going against the fundamental tenets that we believe are crucial to being a Latter-day Saint. And of course, those outside of Nauvoo see it as a betrayal of religious liberty, of saying that we granted you a refuge here and now you are acting as uncivilized, undignified, unChristian heathens, and they see it as, you know, a, a direct threat. So while there are, well, I, I still argue that the major external opposition for Mormonism is based on politics, it certainly did not help that the Mormons religiosity was expanded was, you know continuing a trajectory that uh, many observers felt took them outside of the Christian fold.
0: Yeah, it's it's one of those things where the outside's political power allows the outsiders to find reasons to right exactly yeah 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 ostracize. You have this great quote in your book, and I'll just I'll read it here, and we can talk about it. um, That you say that the story of Nauvoo is a story of America's religious frontier. It is also a story of democracy in crisis. Many historians have noted how slavery tested the boundaries of American politics during the 1840s, as the sectional divide seemed to trump national cohesion. But the Mormons, in their own way, presented a challenge to American unity as well. The saga of Nauvoo demonstrates how tenuous the democratic experiment still was. The rights reserved for American citizens, they came to believe, were only available to a different sort of people. So, you know, a big question here, but I am guess I'm curious. I mean, how, do you, how does the experience of, Mormons, uh, of the Mormons at Nauvoo exemplify some of these larger debates going on in American society?
1: So I think the the Mormon experience of, of what they actually do and how they respond is, is quite unique. I mean, there's very few people who create a theocracy that's predicated on you know polygamous rule and divine revelation and prophecy. I mean, there are a few others that have similar symmetries, but 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 not a lot. But the broader context and how that is both dealt with and not dealt with does touch on these broader themes, right? This concept of how do we incorporate minority voices in America. And I use that term tepidly mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because I know there there's a lot of baggage that come with it. Mormons have access to a lot of rights and privileges that say indigenous Americans or African Americans didn't have in Nashville America. So I, I, so I don't want to you know be too glib with that comparison. Mm-hmm. But this concept of what is the role in the federal government in intervening when there are these local crash, clashes is quite crucial. When Joseph Smith and the Mormons are kicked out of Missouri and they settle in Illinois, the first thing they do is they send uh, delegates to Washington, D.C. to meet with uh, President Martin Van Buren and congressmen to say, hey, we need reparations. Uh, we, we need uh, the federal government to step in and right these wrongs that took place in Missouri. And Martin Van Buren and most politicians say, hey, that's a state matter. That The federal government is neither inclined nor empowered to get involved in these local disputes. And the Mormon response to this is, well, what happens when the governor is the head of the mob? How, how do we handle them? There needs to be a, to use early American political terms, a dispassionate umpire who can step in, And, you know, tell and, you know, settle these scores because Jacksonian America, Jacksonian America was predicated on this idea of local control. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens when you place too much power on the local control is that majoritarian rules can trample on the rights of of marginalized groups. I mean, Alexis de Tocqueville, who tours America just a decade before this, calls this the tyranny of the majority, right? That the excesses of the democracy can excesses of democracy can mean that uh, the rights and the voices of those on the margins aren't listened to. And I think that's one of the key parts of this story. Mormons, uh, because they needed it, I mean, it wasn't out of this you know, idealistic political philosophy. It was mm-hmm. because they needed it. We want the federal government to step in and intervene. At one point, they even call on the federal government to designate Nauvoo a federal territory so that they could be outside of of state control. And Joseph Smith uh, corresponds with a number of national politicians like John C. Calhoun. And John C. Calhoun responds like, hey, federal government has no authority in this matter. You need to be on yourself. And Joseph Smith responds to Calhoun saying, hey, the state's rights doctrine is what feeds mobs. Uh, so you got this division. What I find so fascinating is these a lot of the same arguments that the Mormons are making in the 1840s end up being used a decade later by abolitionists and women's rights advocates. And in the end, this, uh, this rhetoric of the federal government being empowered to protect the rights of individual citizens get enshrined during the Reconstruction era with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. So that's why I think this is a broader story about what state and federal sovereignty mean in early America.
0: And again, sort of it's, it's all up for debate in the sense of like there's not a there's not necessarily a clear plan or trajectory or ideology at play here. I mean, you, you talk about the fact um, I mean, I'm, I'm so curious about Joseph Smith's sort of political wanderings during this time period. Um, you know, as you said, he, he sends delegates to meet with Martin Van Buren or uh, or sends a delegation to lobby Congress to make Nauvoo a formal federal territory uh, and even starts a presidential campaign uh, uh, for the 1844 election. Um, this is all happening at the same time, uh, that church leaders are also beginning to look at potential colonization efforts outside of the United States. Um, I guess, uh, my question, if, if I'm sort of winding up to one here would be, uh, like, what is the, 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 the principle here? What's the ideology? Like what's going on in Joseph Smith's head that like, we're doing these scattershot, uh, uh policy ideas.
1: My, my favorite, uh, explanation for Joseph Smith's political ideology is, is, a is a phrase that goes along with uh, this season in America, which is survive and advance, right? Attached to the March Madness, do whatever you can to advance to the next round in college basketball. I think that's what the Mormons are doing in Nauvoo. That they are looking for, I mean, like many Americans, they are very millennial, where they believe that the second mm-hmm. coming is going to be, you know, any year now. So what we are doing is surviving until we get this bridge period to, you know, this apocalyptic season. So mm-hmm. they're throwing wet spaghetti against the wall to see what <laughs> sticks. Uh, which, And I think maybe the best example of this is when the Mormons are kicked, forcibly kicked out of Illinois and they move out west to Utah. And then suddenly they're all about local control and territorial governance and the federal government not getting involved. And then the the great irony of the story, right, is that by after the Civil War and the Republican Party takes control and Reconstruction politics give the federal government this, you know, strong federal authority. Now they wield that federal authority to strike down the Mormons again out mm-hmm. in out in and out in Utah, which kind of shows how this, you know, the the paradoxes and the surprises of this broader story that political philosophy is not a, you know, a predetermined trajectory of, of what's going on. It's often determined by, you know, circumstances, personalities, and uh, constantly changing conditions.
0: No, that's a good point. I mean, if the if the sort of the, the the overarching goal is community preservation, faith preservation, then you're going to adapt the political structures to whatever sort of you need to respond to, to ensure that the, the, the church lives and the community stays together. That, that makes good sense here. I, I'd be curious to just hear a bit more about that presidential campaign, uh, what yeah. it looked like on the ground. Um, yeah, what, were some, what, what was Joseph Smith proposing uh, for his presidential run?
1: Yeah, historians have long debated whether Joseph Smith was serious with his presidential run. Was, did he sincerely believe that he could win? Um, or was he a protest candidate? Um, I generally fall on the side that, um, that he saw it mostly as a, as a chance to get the Mormon message out. Uh, but you couldn't rule out, you know, a divine intervention. Uh, Spencer McBride, who wrote a wonderful book on Smith's presidential campaign, uh, put it quite, uh, uh, distinctly when he said that Mormons believed it would take a miracle for Joseph to win the presidency, but they happen to believe in miracles. And so they, you know, put in the groundwork. So Joseph Smith only runs for president, for the presidency after they write the five leading presidential candidates in the fall of 1843 saying, if you are elected, uh, what would you do for the Mormon cause? Of the five they wrote, only three responded. Of the three who responded, none of them pledged support, including the interaction with John C. Calhoun that I already referenced yeah. earlier. And so Joseph Smith and the Saints decide, well, if no one is going to be in... Looking after our interests, maybe we should do it. Maybe we should run. And that's why when they nominate Joe Smith, and even though he was a long shot, and I'm pretty sure he recognized that he was a long shot, they put in the effort for people to take it serious. They sent out campaigning uh, missionaries out throughout the East, they set up nomination conventions in every state. Uh, they were, I mean, and party politics at the state level was only about a decade or old Mm -hmm. at this point, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, they're only developed by the Whigs and the uh, anti-Masonry party and the Democrats in the 1830s, but Mormons are already embracing this. And they planned a national nomination convention take place in Baltimore, the same place where the Whigs and and Democrats were holding their nomination convention. Joseph Smith's presidential campaign was a very Quixotic is the word I'm going to use of a very uh, uh, interesting campaign. Uh, There are some things he was all about: strong federal power and the federal government being able to step in and uh, and you know adjudicate or uh, adjudicate any of these you know local disputes. At one point, Joseph said that the federal says that the federal government should be as powerful in the American sphere as Jehovah is in the religious sphere, which is a phrase that I'm sure many contemporary Mormon libertarians might take issue with. Um, He argues that uh, America should annex Texas and then selling off public land and using that money to then uh, emancipate those who are enslaved. Uh, He argues that we should create a national bank, uh, that we should abolish prisons. Uh, A lot of his uh, principles were kind of rooted in his own personal experience. they were rarely consistent, uh, rarely at, always coherent. Um, Joseph was not a great political historian uh, on the same page where he argues that the federal government should be powerful and that we should restructure a national bank. He also says that Andrew Jackson is the best president that America ever had, which uh, <laughs> it's, are t- things that typically don't go together. Um, and then Joe Smith ends up being killed uh, in in Illinois in June of 1844 in the midst of his presidential campaign. So he also happens to be the first American presidential candidate to be murdered.
0: So leading up to the uh, the, the assassination in 1844, um, I mean, sort of what? what could you give us sort of a rundown of sort of the lead up of what leads to that assassination? I mean, sort of these tensions that you, you've talked about are building and building, uh, but they do eventually culminate in that assassination in 1844. Could you maybe give us a little bit of background on what led up to that?
1: Yeah. One of my driving questions in writing this book was what led a group of otherwise peaceful and law-abiding citizens in Illinois decide that their only recourse to justice was to murder Joseph Smith while he was held in state custody. Because that seems a radical step, right? Yes, yes. And and those people who march on Carthage Jail and kill Judge Smith live an otherwise peaceful life, you know, the the rest of their days. And so it's like this one blip. So what leads people to do this? Um, well, it comes down to that they had something deeply in common with the Mormons, which was they no longer believed in the existing democratic structures. They had saw the Mormons take on all this political power. They had seen Joseph Smith and the Mormons institute legal mechanisms that seemed to place Joseph Smith above the law so that whenever he was arrested, he would find a way to a legal loophole through habeas corpus or other Mm -hmm. means to get out. And so they had determined that uh, politicians were unwilling to chastise the Mormons because they wanted their votes. And the legal system wasn't willing to hold the Mormons accountable because they were fallible. And so just like the Mormons, Those who killed Joseph believed that the system could not be trusted. And so only extra legal uh, measures uh, could work. And so the mob who marched on Carthage Jail wrote a manifesto detailing why we did this. I mean and this goes against our common conceptions of mobs. People carrying, you know, pitchforks and fires and you know marching off. You think of the the meme of the Simpsons characters all you know marching in this unruly mob who aren't really thinking rationally. Mm-hmm. Whereas this mob who marched on Carthage, they write a manifesto. How often do you think, "Hey, hey guys, calm down." Cletus, put down your pitchfork. We need to write out our manifesto and explain what we're doing. But that's what they did. And in their manifesto, they argued that the democratic system has failed us. No one is willing to he- hold the Mormons uh, accountable. Here's Joe Smith practicing his uh, ridiculous doctrines and polygamy and taking on all this political power. And, they're, uh, and the rest of us in Hancock County, where Nauvoo is located... Our voice doesn't matter anymore because the Mormons are dominating these politics. So when this fails, we need to take justice in our own hands. And so the mob take on the name, the Warsaw Committee of Safety. And this Committee of safety was the same term used by the American revolutionaries in the 19 and the 1770s when they argued that the British government is no longer looking after in our interests we have to take go back to the number one rule of humanity which is self-preservation and that's what led them or at least that's what how they justified their actions
0: yeah something that came up to me too as I was reading the book is just how present uh, violence or the the threat of violence or the the, the need to I don't know, give the impression that one is willing to uh, partake in violence in order to preserve their political right. economic power as well. I mean, right. And, and, the, and the argument of this, you know, frontier period is that if
1: a majority of people rise up and decide that, then that's the voice of the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why the people who killed Joseph Smith, one of the reasons that they're let off the next year from murder is that they decide, how can we punish these few people for doing the will of the community? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I think finding we Americans take a false pride in the idea that democracy can always be solved through peaceful measures when our history is littered with counterexamples, Illinois in particular. I mean, th- they're just years off from the Black Hawk War, another mm-hmm. way where they had to turn to violence uh, to punish those that they felt don't belong within their community.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Um, I'm curious and, and sort of the aftermath, of of that assassination of Joseph Smith, um, I mean, you note know that there's obviously disgruntled uh, Mormons as they see that there's just no repercussion for those who partook in the you know the the assassination of Joseph Smith in uh, a government building. Um, so what so what happens after that? I mean, what's the what's the story of of Mormonism after the assassination?
1: Yeah, so. Those who killed Joseph Smith believed that Mormonism was going to die, that you cut off the head of the snake and that it was just going to dissipate. Uh, Mormons disappointed them in that regard, because as soon as Joseph Smith dies, you have a bit of a succession crisis, which I wish we had a whole episode to talk on, because it's just a fascinating story of who takes over for Joseph Smith when he didn't really lay out a clear succession plan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, But very soon, Brigham Young. Who comes to be a domineering figure in American history takes control of the church. And uh, he continues on a lot of the things that Joe Smith had been doing that had, you know, frustrated the neighbors, including polygamy and including political participation. And soon the neighboring counties realized that, look, killing Joe Smith was enough. We have to forcibly expunge the Mormons from our region. And the Mormons soon realized that, you know, if we're going to stay, we're going to have to fight our ground. And over the summer of 1845, there was a battle in, uh, you know, surrounding Nauvoo with several casualties. And the Illinois governor at the time, Thomas Ford, sets up a commission chaired by Stephen A. Douglas to decide how do we solve this Mormon crisis? And it results in maybe one of the most awkward letters written by a governor in American history where he writes Brigham Young and basically says, look, we have no authority to do this, but it would be great if you leave. We don't think this crisis is going anywhere with you staying. And thankfully for the whole situation, the Mormons had already decided that on their own. Mm -hmm. And so starting in early 1846, the Latter-day Saints left uh, Illinois, which meant leaving America to head out to what was then Northern Mexico, uh, in the Utah basin. And as they left, they basically, uh, you know, we're saying, screw United States. United States had failed us. We're going to go set up our own empire outside of American borders, which is of course this great irony where American Mormons a century later become, you know, some of the most, you know, uber patriotic Americans. And if you go to Utah on July 24th every year where they celebrate pioneer day, you see people waving American flags which is just mm-hmm. this great irony because Mormons fled to Utah to escape America.
0: Yeah, that that per- I, I agree. I could do a whole po- like we should do an episode on the fracture after the assassination. I wrote a very mediocre uh, research paper on the on the Strangites <laughs> of Jason, on James Strang and in that community. Uh, I'm from Michigan originally. I was just fascinated by that yeah. side story. Um, I'm curious, you know, uh, what should. What should the listeners of Heartland history take away from the kingdom of Nauvoo?
1: I'd like to see listeners take that Mormonism is part of Midwestern history, just like it's part of American history that rather than seeing it as, as an exceptional episode, kind of like just gets its own blip uh, that it actually tells us a lot about America at the time and Midwestern America at the time that the same dynamics Uh, that Mormons are experiencing, even if their proposed solutions are outside the pale of what people back then and now might consider rational, the dynamics they're responding to were quite crucial. And they tell us a lot about what American democracy was like at the time. So I think seeing Mormonism as both part of American Midwestern Mm -hmm. history, but embedded inside Mm -hmm. a a crucial story of American Midwestern history, I, I uh, I would be thrilled if that was a takeaway.
0: You, you recently, well, you were on a book tour when this book originally came out, though I, I suspect it was thwarted by, you know, sort of the initial wave of, of COVID. Um, you recently went to Nauvoo, correct? Um, how, I'm, I'm just curious, I mean, that community is obviously different now, but I'm just curious how does the uh, a book talk on this topic go over in Nauvoo? I mean, how, yeah, how so- aware is the community with this history? I'm just curious what that's like.
1: So the Nauvoo community itself now is very small. It's about 2000 people and it's been about 2000 people. It's been a consistent population for about a century now, um, which is, you know, about a 10th of what it was during the heyday of the, of the 1840s, which is quite remarkable. Um, It's this interesting, uh, heritage point and a, and a pilgrimage point for the various Mormon diasporic uh, communities, whether it be the Latter-day Saint Church based in Utah, the community of Christ based in the Midwest, uh, all the different, you know, break off groups uh, that they see it as a this, this spirit, spiritual pilgrimage site. And every summer it is just crowded and you can't find a spare room because people are coming in to witness the pageant and to see all the restored homes. And some people call it, you know, the Mormon Williamsburg. So if you live in Nauvoo, you have to be aware of the city. Although there's a a, a very complicated relationship between the community and the Mormons, as mm-hmm. as you might imagine. Um, outside of Nauvoo, in that general region, it's it's a very interest. It's a point of curiosity. So I went out and I spoke at Quincy, uh, Quincy, Illinois, just uh, you know an hour south of Nauvoo which has this very powerful story of when the Mormons first arrived in Illinois, they sought refuge in Quincy and Quincy mm-hmm. provided it. And when the Mormons were leaving Nauvoo, those who were left behind once again sought refuge and Quincy provided it. So to Quincy, whereas you know, Carth- the Carthage residents might have a different you know history of how they think of Mormons in Nauvoo, the Quincy residents, they see it as a point of pride. And the reason I was brought out to speak there is they had founded a new... Um, uh, donation uh, uh, project where they're raising money to help refugees and those who are the downtrodden in legacy of you know how the Quincy had helped the Mormons before so you can see how the Mormon story becomes malleable based on these mm-hmm. different contexts and so I imagine many in Illinois might view the Nauvoo story differently than Quincy but I think the Quincy part is a crucial part of the Illinois memory
0: yeah and I'm also curious I mean I've taught in Illinois now for nearly 2 years. I'd be curious. I mean, the 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 Mormon saga, the you know, the the short history in Nauvoo. I would say Illinois and students in my history of Illinois class are aware of it, um but it seems sort of like a hiccup in a, a broader history and it seems that, you know, thinking of this as a central element of the as you know, not just Midwestern history, Illinois history, American history, but you also make a case that like Nauvoo was larger than Chicago at its, you know, at Nauvoo's peak. Uh, this is not just some sort of side story of of the state's history and the Midwestern history. This was a major community that, uh, you know, brought a lot of attention to this region. Right. I mean, it was it was the largest city in Illinois mm-hmm, at the mm-hmm.
1: time. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I, as you mentioned, my book tour, unfortunately, got canceled due to COVID when I was just a few weeks into it. So I was supposed to go speak in Knox College. I was going to be speaking in Chicago. And I was very interested to see what the reception would be there. Maybe at some point that'll <laughs> happen. But as you mentioned, I would love for residents of Illinois to see Nauvoo, even if it's a troubling part of the story still be a crucial part of the state's history.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, before we wrap things up, uh, I might, I'm curious if you might be willing to share with our listeners any projects that you might be working on. I know you're, you're a busy person, but do you have anything currently underway?
1: Yeah, so uh, as soon as Kingdom of Nauvoo came out, my press, the, the Live Right imprint of W.W. Norton, approached me about doing a general synthesis of Mormonism in America. And I had other projects that I was planning to do, but this one was enticing, A, because I could continue on the story of Nauvoo and also... I realized I wasn't gonna be able to get in the research trips that I was planning. Uh, so I am over halfway done uh, with that project. I'm hoping to have it done by the end of the year. And so it will eventually appear uh, with the Live Right imprint of Norton, uh, a general history of Mormonism America, doing some of the same things I do in Kingdom of Nauvoo, which is using Mormonism as a lens through which to see crucial issues uh-huh. of American uh, religious and political and cultural history writ large.
0: Great. Well, that that sounds super interesting. And I I look forward uh, to checking that out when it comes out. Um, Well, Dr. Park, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Again, for our listeners, the book is The Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier, published by Liveright Publishing, which is an imprint of W.W. Norton. And I would encourage everyone to get their hands on a copy at a local bookstore or online. Dr. Park, thank you so much for joining me today. I enjoyed the conversation.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure.